and welcome to She Said, She Said. Okay, who among us hasn't suffered from fear of public speaking at one point or another? It's a common problem and many of us, no matter how many speeches we've given, still struggle. And if you're female, you may be susceptible to overthinking, both leading up to the speech or second guessing yourself and your performance afterwards, regardless of how well you actually performed. Our guest today is Allison Shapira. She is the founder and CEO of Global Public Speaking, that firm that specialized in helping a growing roster of clients fine tune their public speaking skills. She also teaches the topic at Harvard's Kennedy School. Today, Allison is going to share her perspective to help us tame our trepidation about public speaking, but she'll also share her very own inspiring personal story of finding her voice. I'm here with my friend, Allison Shapira. Allison, welcome to the show. Thank you, Laura. I'm very happy to be here. So, so happy to have you. I am so excited about this topic today, uh, both because I think you have incredible knowledge and information to share, but also selfishly, I have yet to give a speech, any little speech, without at least momentarily thinking, I could just run from the room before anyone notices. Where does this fear of public speaking most commonly come from? The interesting thing is that everyone has some degree of discomfort with public speaking and many people are downright afraid of it. It doesn't matter what country you live in, what language you speak, what industry or what stage you're at in your career. Everyone has some degree of discomfort and there are a number of reasons why that is. One of the reasons is that to speak in public is to be vulnerable. You're putting yourself out there and you're representing, you're either representing yourself or your organization or your community. And so there, there's a fair degree of risk involved in that. What if I say the wrong thing? What if I make a fool of myself or of others? So that self-preservation instinct kicks in and the fight or flight response makes you wanna run from the room. Mm-hmm. which is why so many people are afraid of public speaking. So you have a growing roster of clients um, with your company. You are the founder of this company. What is the most common problem that people have? In addition to having general trepidation about it, what's the most common challenge that you see? Many people don't know how to prepare which means they don't know how to use what little time they have effectively. So they wind up either over-preparing or under-preparing and then feeling generally out of control before they speak. And when I talk about public speaking, it could be a meeting, it could be a conversation, an interview. It's very broad. And so not having a process to prepare is something that makes people feel uncomfortable because they don't know what to do in order to be good at it. And I believe public speaking is a skill. What is your best advice for preparing? I have a particular methodology that I teach and I have a way of writing a speech in 30 minutes. And I use that framework with my clients and we have tips on our website for that. So it's not about spending hours and hours and it's certainly not pulling an all-nighter the night before the speech and then trying to figure out text boxes on a PowerPoint slide. It's about using that 30 minutes effectively to determine what you want to say, why you want to say it, and why you care. That's fantastic. 
Can you give us a little bit more, uh, some other examples on how that process works? Sure. The first three questions, and these are three questions that you've heard me speak about when we were together in London. There, there are three questions I recommend everybody ask before a speech, presentation, pitch, or even whether they're going to speak up at a meeting. Who's your audience is the first. Who am I speaking to? Because when you know who you're speaking to, you know what language or argumentation to use that will resonate with them. The second question is, what's your goal? What do you want people to do? Recognizing every speech is an opportunity to change people's behavior. The third question is the most important, and that's why you? Why do you care? about what you're talking about. Why do you care about your audience, about the work that you do? And when you connect with that why you, it fills you with a sense of purpose that calms your nerves and helps you overcome your fear so that not only are you not afraid of speaking, you can't wait to get out there in service of your message. That's so interesting. So so what, what does that do by finding your purpose? What does it do to your speech and to the impact that you potentially have on your audience? It has an, a surprisingly significant impact because I can teach you body language, I can teach you eye contact, I can teach you how to act out your speech. But when you connect with an authentic drive or sense of purpose, it naturally animates your body. It naturally infuses your voice with a conversational tone. It builds your confidence and it also makes your language more authentic because it's hard to talk about something you're passionate about using corporate jargon. Mm. And that's not what inspires people. We're not inspired by jargon. We're inspired by clear, concise, direct language. And so asking why you helps you connect with your authentic sense of purpose, which brings out a more genuine language. One of the basic things that you said is know your audience. Correct. And I call that foundational, not basic. (laughs) Makes makes all the sense in the world. Foundational, much better word. Mm -hmm. What if you can't? What if if for whatever reason you have difficulty knowing? Maybe you know that it's going to be an audience of predominantly men or predominantly women, but you don't know what age they are. You don't know what level of experience. Mm -hmm. What do you do in that scenario? You're always going to have some idea of who the audience is because you know where physically the event will take place and you know what the topic is hopefully. So based on those two questions, and you can also reach out to the organizer to determine more information on the audience. But if you don't have that much information, then you can say, okay, how do I design and craft a persuasive message for a general audience, for a diverse audience? How can I say something that resonates with people who know a lot about the subject and know a little about the subject? And that's a particular challenge. And then in the room, you can get a sense of who's there and you can adapt your content accordingly. Depends on how well you know your subject when you're able to adapt on the fly. If I don't know, I'll also build in questions in the beginning of my own presentation to say, why are you here? What are you hoping to get out of this? And then after teaching the subject for 15 years, I can pivot fairly quickly and say, well, if you're just starting out, this is what you do. But for those of you who want the more advanced version, this is how I normally address that issue. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Let's talk a bit about gender as it relates to public speaking, given that this is the She Said, She Said podcast, and I would venture to guess most of our listeners are women. Do you see 
distinct differences between the ways in which women approach public speaking and men approach public speaking? That's such a nuanced question because there's so many different ways in which people approach public speaking based on personality style, based on whether they're introverts or extroverts. Certainly gender plays a part, but there are so many differences. What I notice is that men and women face the same challenges with speaking, whether it's being concise versus being too verbose, using filler words, using vocal tics like uptalk or vocal fry. Men and women make the same mistakes, but for women, it costs us more mm, when we make those that. mistakes. So yeah, I'll give you okay. an example. I run a, a, a month-long or multi-month training program in leadership communication for female investment bankers. And one woman I worked with, she was a managing director and said, there are no senior women in our field who lack communication skills, but there are plenty of senior men who lack <laughs> communication skills. And the point she was making is that you can be male in this industry and still advance without these skills. For women, you cannot advance without these skills. So for women, especially women who are in industries where it's a mostly male industry, anything that they don't do well holds them back at a disproportionate rate than it would hold back their male colleagues. So both men and women need these skills. They should both learn these skills. But for women, when we don't have them, it costs us more. Let's talk specifically. You mentioned vocal fry. You mentioned mentioned filler words. Yes. I think self-deprecation you could probably put in here as Absolutely. well. Let's break this down and talk about exactly what you mean when you use those terms and why that can have a different impact on women versus men. Sure. Filler words. Um, uh, you know, like, so. I also add to that minimizers, which are I think or maybe somebody already said this, but, or I'm sorry, I may be way off base here, but those, and the worst, which is just, I just, I just want to say, I just think, I, I just kind of, you know, think that this is like important. Who does that? <laughs> and I hear men and women do it. Right. But again, when women do it, it, it almost plays into this stereotype of women always asking permission and not having confidence and not being assertive enough. So it plays into a preconceived stereotype of women. And that's why it can be so destructive, more destructive for women than, than men when they use it. I hear it, I hear it in corporate boardrooms. I hear it in nonprofits. I hear it in, in politicians. Everyone uses it. And my antidote for that is to simply pause and breathe. So if you can, close your mouth and breathe through your nose when you're transitioning from one sentence to the next. And it makes you look and appear and feel more thoughtful and confident as opposed to floundering for the next word to say. And by cutting out the minimizers, you make whatever you have to say that much more impactful. Now, what I don't mean is being assertive about something that you're not sure about. So it's not bluster and falsely promoting something you don't believe. You can hedge, but hedge strategically. You can confidently say, there's a lot of debate on this issue, but here's what I've seen 
as opposed to, well, you know, I could, I could like kind of be wrong, but, um, but here's what I think. <laughs> One way has more confidence than the other. They're both hedging, but there are different ways of hedging. Yeah. Let's talk about vocal fry in okay. particular. Let's talk about vocal fry. <laughs> what is vocal fry? Where does this come from? What, what does it mean? Why do people do this? Vocal fry is, and I can produce the sound because I know what, what produces it. It's a particular thing that we do with our vocal cords that causes them to flutter in a, in a, in a non-elegant way that, that produces this kind of of sound. I used to call it popcorn or crunchies because that's what it what it sounds like. And and you hear the difference when I stop doing that. You can hear the strength and resonance in my voice versus this way. Now, a lot of people very few people do this intentionally. It's something that they could pick up from others and some people will call it the the Kim Kardashian effect. Kim Kardashian does it, Katy Perry, so those are habit. It's a habit that people pick up. Now, Noam Chomsky does it as well. So it's not just female pop personalities. And there's a fascinating research, a fascinating interview that I heard where a lot of women would write into a radio, st- or a lot of people would write into a radio station to complain about the vocal fry of the women broadcasters, but they wouldn't mention the vocal fry of the male broadcasters. And there's another interesting article that looks at job prospects or the higher ability of men versus women who use vocal fry, and again, disproportionately negatively affects women as opposed to men, but both men and women do it. And the antidote to it is more purposeful breathing and then speaking in a way that lets your breath project your words forward instead of cutting off the breath. So it's simply a lazy way of speaking. I tend to hear this with I'm going to sound 127 years old when I say this, but I do tend to hear this as sort of a millennial thing, or I attribute it to being a millennial thing, and Janine's nodding her head here. She, We've talked about this. Is it something that's sort of a generational thing? or I certainly hear it more in people who are younger versus older. But again... Noam Chomsky. Right, right, right. Sometimes it's a habit we pick up. Sometimes it it has to do with our vocal cords. Maybe there's been some damage to our vocal cords. But I do hear it more in younger people, and they pick it up from people around them. And the term that I refer to in my book is linguistic contagion. Now, linguistic contagion can be positive. We pick up regional accents from people around us. If we live in the Northeast, we can have a Northeast accent. But... It can also be negative when we're picking up filler words. People in the same organization will all tend to use the same filler words. We'll pick up vocal fry. We'll certainly pick up up talk from the people around us as well. And that's, again, something we hear more in younger professionals as opposed to more older professionals. So we need more Allison-trained professionals in our organization to try to eliminate exactly. Some of these I'm problems. I'm here to help. Right. I'm here to help. So. Let's shift gears a little bit, continuing to talk a bit about women and how women can sometimes have a tendency toward perfectionism. How you does think? that? I do. <laughs> I do indeed. Card-carrying member of the, of the perfectionist society, Re- recovering in recovery, of course. But but as it relates to preparation for public speaking, how much is enough? How much is too much? 
It depends on every person. But you're absolutely right in that a, a need for perfection is going to hold us back. It's going to emphasize our nervousness as we prepare because we feel like we have to over prepare. It's also going to affect how much we beat each beat ourselves up after the speech because all we focus on are the flaws. And so then we think we didn't do a good job. So it negatively affects us on both ends, the before and the after. The the antidote to that, and there are a few different ways that I approach this, but first you have to give up the need for perfection. There is no, and anyone who's tried to juggle multiple careers or work-life balance simultaneously knows that there is no perfection. And this is an important lesson I learned transitioning from an opera singer to a folk singer because opera is opera is a performance. It's about that, that perfection of the art form. That's why we go to a show. We want to hear that effortless high C or that flawless Italian pronunciation. In folk music, I learned it's not about perfection, it's about authenticity. We, I may not be, I'm certainly not the best musician, but I'm 100% myself on stage. And I use that as, a, as an analogy when I teach public speaking, that public speaking is more like folk music than like opera. The audience doesn't want you to be perfect. In fact, if you are perfect, then the audience might not trust you. Mm. You may be too slick. Too man, it, it may be manipulative. You'll come across as as untrustworthy. Versus if, if you have a few ums and ahs, you forget your place, that's fine. As long as you're confident in yourself and the value that you bring, the audience is going to connect with you on a more personal level because of your authenticity over perfection. Making you relatable. Which essence. makes you relatable. Right. right. We don't we don't relate to stories of of the the perfect mom doing the perfect thing and raising the perfect kids. We we can, we can get jealous about that, but we relate to the people who share their struggles and show their flaws because then we realize we're not alone. Right. Right. Let's talk about um, this notion of how you evaluate your performance. You touched on something that I think is so important, and I mentioned this in the open, in fact, this tendency to be really hard on ourselves after we've given the speech and to focus on perhaps that, you know, 10% or 1% that we didn't, where we didn't do as well as we could have. Wasn't perfect, right? Versus the 90% that we basically got right. What's your advice for people, particularly for women, as you, you know, have an opportunity, hopefully, to listen to yourself, give a speech, and evaluate it? What's your advice for knowing how to do that most constructively? It's really important to evaluate yourself after a speech. But to your point, you can't beat yourself up after the speech. So I've developed a logbook, a speaker's logbook that I use with my clients that, that lets you track your progress. So after every speech, you ask yourself three questions. What went well? You always start with what went well because your instinct is not to do that. Start with what went well. I like that. Then what didn't go well? And the third question is critical. What am I going to do differently next time? So then you're transitioning from 
focusing on the past to focusing on the future. So what am I going to do after this? I do this with my team after every single speech or presentation. If it's a workshop, we don't fly home on the earlier plane. We sit after the workshop and answer those questions in depth. We spend about 30 minutes on that process and think about what are we going to improve for the next time. And that's something that people can do after every speech or presentation. And then they can also give that booklet to someone else who they trust and have that person give them feedback as well so that it's not your own subjective feedback, but it's someone else giving you that feedback. The concept of what could we do better and how we're going, how are we going to improve is in and of itself really empowering because you're taking control of the situation and trying to do something about it. Exactly. It comes back to the the fact that public speaking is a skill and not a talent. So if you you could make the same mistake a hundred times, but if you don't focus on improving it, you're not going to improve. If you look at it as a learnable skill, then by doing an analysis after every time you practice it, you're going to make progress and you'll get better and you'll be more confident. And as a result, you'll be more impactful. Allison, I've heard you talk about your five tips for calming your nerves before you pub- before you give a speech. What are those five tips? I have a video that I recorded about this on a very calm lake in Connecticut that that, that people can see on my YouTube Birds channel. Birds are tweeting. It's Birds great. are tweeting. It's all. It's, it was wonderful. We recorded it at six in the morning before all the boats started waking up, and it starts with centering yourself. So stopping everything else that's going on, taking deep breaths in order to center yourself, reminding yourself of your sense of purpose, that why you. I also have a core value statement exercise that I use where people connect with their core values. So you practice that deep breathing, you connect with your why you, you imagine yourself giving a powerful speech. So you have a positive visualization of the outcome. And then you run through the first sentence and the last sentence to remind yourself that you know how you're going to begin and you know how you're going to end. And the last thing that you do in that process is smile. You smile to yourself because the act of smiling physically makes you feel better and then you're ready. Can you talk a bit about the difference between executive presence and stage presence? It's very similar. And I started with stage presence as a performer. That's what I what I studied. I realized so many of those components are similar to executive presence in terms of how you hold yourself, your appearance, your sense of confidence in yourself and your material. Where it starts to diverge is what you're using that presence to do. So with stage presence, you're using it to put on a show. With executive presence, you're using it to build a relationship with the people that you're speaking to. So one part of your executive presence is the the relationships that you have with others, the way you're able to build trust, to speak with integrity, to make sure that your words and your actions are in alignment. And so that's an area where executive presence starts to become more relational than simply putting on a show. Executive presence is not putting on a show. It is making sure that every part of you is communicating the same thing, but it also is in the service of connecting with individuals. How do 
body language and clothing choice play into that notion of stage presence versus executive presence since they seem to be sort of so closely aligned potentially? Well, people, as I mentioned, we're communicating the moment we walk into a room. The moment we walk into a boardroom, into a meeting with clients, a lunch or a dinner, or on a, a huge stage. Before you start speaking. Before you start speaking. The moment you walk on, your body language is communicating. It's either communicating a lack of confidence or an abundance of confidence. You're, the way you make eye contact or not, recognizing that's highly cultural. So in different cultures, a certain more or less eye contact is appropriate. But whether or not you look at the people you're meeting with is a factor of your executive presence. What you wear, unfortunately, is communicating. So if, you, if you're wearing jeans and flip-flops, that's communicating. Now, you may do that intentionally, and that's fine. It depends on who your audience is and what your goal is. But if, you are, if your goal is to be on stage or in a meeting in service of your message, then what can you wear that also is in service of that message? So I think about attire every time I walk into a room because I want to be intentional about what I communicate. It, I can't say what's right or wrong. I can't tell you when to wear a suit, when to wear high heels versus flats. And women get into a lot of trouble with this. Or so many choices. There are too many choices. There, and then there's how tight is it, how short is it. If you're on stage and on a panel, the, the skirt comes up a lot more than you think. So one, one female executive that I work with fairly frequently says she never goes to a conference in a dress when she's speaking. She just doesn't want to have to worry about the hem length. She always wears pants. And that's something that, that we have to worry about. Climbing up on a bar stool in a skirt is just about the worst thing. I've seen where that goes wrong. Oh, and think so about where you are and where your audience is. <laughs> Eyesight is, again, it's fine to use your, your attire to send a message, but make sure you're intentional about what that message is so you're not sending an unintended message that distracts people from what you're really there to focus on. It's a balance. Yeah. Let's transition and talk about your personal story, which is so inspiring and so fascinating. You alluded to this a moment ago. You haven't always been a public speaking consultant. How did you find your way here? The, the start was through opera. Growing up, all I ever wanted to do was be an opera singer. So I went to performing arts high school and college for, for voice. But I got disillusioned with the field and really lost my passion for it. So I wound up, I found my way into diplomacy, writing speeches, doing public diplomacy, and realized my operatic training made me a very good speaker and an even better coach because as opera singers when we're sing when we're not singing all we're doing is critiquing other opera singers <laughs> so i developed this very fine eye and ear for giving critical feedback and i was able to use those skills with the diplomats i was working with and then literally by accident somebody outside my office came to me for help and i said sure and i charged them <laughs> and, and that was 15 years ago, but that was the beginning of this process of realizing I had very important knowledge and skills that other people were, would pay to learn. 
And so for 10 years, I did that on the side. I worked at Harvard University at the Kennedy School of Government. And even though I was doing non-public speaking things, the public speaking kept following me. So I had a chance to work with David Gergen when he taught the arts of communication. And then I could teach my own workshops. And for 10 years, it was a side business. But I was always afraid to take it full time until about six years ago when I went through a transition in my life. Let's talk about that. It's great to talk about it in hindsight. (laughs) (laughs) It was, I I had been offered a job at a consulting firm in DC and it was doing something completely different from what I had done before. And it seemed like a great opportunity, financial independence. It was a great salary and I would move from Boston to DC. So I accepted the job and flew to DC to sign the contract. And after two days on the job, I had this overwhelming feeling that it was not the right fit. There was nothing wrong with the job or with the office. It was simply a a gut react, not not just gut, head, heart, and gut all telling me this is not where you should be. And so on the third day, I quit. Three days in. Yes. And went back to Boston where I had already given up my apartment and given up my job. So I did what any responsible woman would do in her mid-30s. I put everything I owned into storage and I said, I'm going to Europe with a travel guitar and I'll figure my life out when I get back. And I wound up performing in four countries, playing in bars, playing on street corners, crashing on friends' couches and figuring out what I wanted to do. I wrote a number of songs, came back to Boston and recorded an album because I had nothing else to do (laughs) and then decided to move to Washington, D.C. on my own and finally take this side business teaching public speaking and launch it full time. So I moved to DC with zero clients, but with a strong network of friends, former colleagues, former classmates, and set myself a goal of two networking meetings per day every single day of the week. And I didn't ask for business, I asked for advice on how my skills would be valuable in their industry. Well. Advice turned into business, and I had 35 clients in the first year. So it was this amazing proof of concept, and it kept building and building in every year. And now five and a half, six years in, we're a team of anywhere between six and seven people at any given time working with global companies and traveling all around the world. So it's incredibly gratifying to take such a big risk and then to see that actually work. How hard was it for you to let go of your dream of becoming an opera star? That had been something that you had pursued for a long time. Was that difficult? It was difficult when my voice teacher told me essentially I wasn't good enough. That was difficult because I had always had this singular dream. I I was the focused one in in high school that everyone knew had that one goal. So the hard part was actually not giving up opera because I had been falling out of love of opera anyways. The hard part was not having another goal to replace it with. Mm. So for 10 years before I learned to play the guitar and started my business, I I didn't have that goal. So I was doing things, but I didn't have a sense of purpose. And that was the hardest part of that process for me. When did that moment occur? When did you connect with music in a different way? 
I had just graduated from the Harvard Kennedy School. I had my master's in public administration and I missed singing. I didn't miss opera, but I missed I missed singing folk music, which is what I would do around the house. And so I I was tired of asking friends to play guitar while I sang. I, I was tired of of relying on that. So I figured, you know what, if every 13 year old learns this stupid instrument in his parents' basement, I'm gonna learn this thing. And I borrowed a guitar and started learning it. And it was this amazing combination, putting together guitar and voice. There was this powerful sense of empowerment and self-sufficiency, because I didn't need anyone else to accompany me. Me and my guitar, could go anywhere and could create music and we didn't need to rely on others. So that was a, a terrific moment of, of empowerment for me that later kick-started the business as well because I wanted to build a business. I didn't want to work for someone else. I wanted to build a business around my skills, around my passion and strength. And so realizing that with the guitar made me then realize that with my business. What role does music play in your life now? I am part of a two-woman band oh. right now. We're called Joan and Joni. We're a tribute to Joan Baez and Joni Mitchell. Oh, how wonderful. And my music partner is is one of the most amazingly talented singer-songwriters I know. Her name is Kippen Martin. And we tour around, right now we're touring along the East Coast, although we're working our way west as well. And we have a two-hour show that's a combination of Joan Baez songs, Joni Mitchell songs. And then we bring in our own music to show the impact those two musical legends have had on our career. And we're, the response has been incredibly powerful from people in the audience who remember where they were when they heard Joan Baez and Joni Mitchell and then to hear us interpret that music in a new and modern way is something that's that people are incredibly moved by. That's amazing. Allison, where does confidence come from for you? Not just in public speaking, but more broadly. It's so interesting that you ask that because I was listening to one of your earlier podcasts <laughs> with it was Claire Shipman, yes. correct? From the Confidence Code. Right. And that that book was was fascinating because of the research that they brought in showing how much of confidence comes from our genes, which was interesting if I think about my family. I come from a, a a family of doers, of people who are very confident and build confidence in everyone that they touch. So that's, I could definitely see that coming through the genes. But they also say that the rest of it, the other 50%, more or less, is something that you build. And this is something that I focus on a lot with my workshops and with my clients, because what I found is that building skills builds your confidence. And then positive experiences build your confidence. Positive reinforcement from others builds your confidence. So there's a lot that we can do ourselves that builds our confidence. And then there are people we can seek out who build our confidence. And then when you have that confidence, you demonstrate that confidence in your voice, in your body language, in your pacing, and your choice of words. So the process of building confidence is something that's very much inside out, but the, the process of demonstrating confidence is something that then you can see on the outside. You see it in, in every part of, of the way you act. Mm -hmm. How about dealing with setback? What's your advice for 
dealing with things when they just don't go well? I'm thinking about a couple of different things. And, and it's, I was in my book, I was researching why, why those negative memories are so painful. And it turns out we remember emotional pain even more vividly than physical pain. So I don't remember what it was like when I got my ears pierced, but I will never forget what it felt like when I let somebody down. And so that that pain, the or the what do you do when you deal with setbacks? First of all, you know they're going to happen. It's impossible to not have any setbacks. And that's why in the the speaker's debrief that I use, it's always, okay, so now what? What happened? What am I going to do about it? And, and for me, making a plan for next time is how I exert influence over my own life and how I start to feel better because I'm not simply wallowing in what went wrong. I, I go into action mode. Okay, so what am I going to do differently? How am I going to make sure this never happens again and it never happens to anyone who works with me or for me? And what are we doing to change our processes to make sure it doesn't happen? So for me, the, the action mode is what helps me deal with setbacks. We ask each of our guests on this podcast for a piece of advice or a life hack or a mantra, something that either you live by or that you share regularly with others. What is yours? Pause and breathe. Pause and breathe is an antidote to fillers. It's also a way to calm yourself down before you speak. If you are getting overwhelmed by nerves on stage or in a meeting and things aren't going as you want them to go. Pause and breathe helps you get back on track and be more intentional. And one of my clients refers to pause and breathe as really a, a philosophy in life. And, and you alluded to that earlier. It's a, it's a way of being as opposed to rushing, rushing, rushing from place to place without stopping to take stock of where we are or how far we've come or to connect with why we're doing this instead of just the doing all the time. And I feel like, especially now with so much vying for our attention with social media and constant notifications that we get, Stopping to pause and breathe makes us more physically present, more emotionally present, as an, as a, and as a result, much more impactful in what we do next. So your book is coming out in January Correct. of 2019. Correct. Can you give us a little preview in terms of what we can expect? Yes. It's called Speak with Impact how to command the room and influence others. Can't wait. It's coming out. It's being published by HarperCollins Leadership Imprint, which is very exciting, a terrific publisher. And the idea behind the book is there are lots of books out there that talk about public speaking, but there are very few that walk you through the process of writing, practicing, and delivering a speech or presentation, specifically for those professionals moving up in their career into more senior positions where all of a sudden the stakes are higher and the communication has to be more precise. And so this book, the goal of this book is that it's a practical and inspirational guide to the busy professional who wants to use their voice to exercise leadership on behalf of themselves, on behalf of their organization, or on behalf of their community. So it walks them through that process. You buy the book, you read the book, you use the book to have a positive impact on the people around you. Allison, I can't wait to have you back to talk about the book. I can't wait as well. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here today. It was a real pleasure.
a real pleasure to be here as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. To learn more about Allison, you can go to our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. There we'll post some photos from our visit today, as well as some additional links to Allison's website, uh, as well as some of her TED Talks. And once her book is published, we'll put that there too. You can follow She Said, She Said on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening. This is a piece that I wrote while I was traveling around Europe, and it talks about the process of wandering. It's called All Along. So I left a great apartment on a quiet Cambridge street, and I moved in with some good friends. ticket all of Europe for me to see packed my life into a suitcase left Boston by the sea and everywhere I turned to the answer was the same forget about your worries just get up on that plane there I was in an airport bar with my backpack and guitar saying this is who you are Searching for you, burning for you And all along I told myself You would appear If only I'd stop my searching I'd find you here